0: Good morning, it's my great pleasure and privilege to greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. I'm very happy to be here with y'all. Turn to Matthew 5. I'm not going to ask you to turn to a lot of these verses. Most of them are short, and we have a lot to go through. You knew I was coming, so y'all have your crockpots on low, right? And Matthew 5.8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So what do we think when we read that verse? Blessed are the pure in heart, so they shall see God. Well, does it mean anything special? Does that excite you? Maybe it means something more if we put it in context. Let's go back to 5.3. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. So is this this a list of nice-to-haves? Can we, can we look around and say, oh, oh Ellis is meek. He, he's going to inherit the earth. Well, that's, that's nice. That's nice. Nelson, Nelson is merciful. So Nelson will, will have mercy. If I could be a peacemaker, well, I'd be called a son of God. Well, that would really be nice. Oh, but I could pass on that whole persecution thing, though, right? If we're to take the name of Christ... Can we call any of these things optional? Because they all have opposites, don't they? Those who are merciless will not receive mercy. Those who don't seek righteousness will be empty. Those who are proud will not be in heaven. Those with corrupt hearts will not see God. We gain each of these blessings as we're changed by Christ to have that attribute. And so when we're humbled before God, when we mourn for our sins, when we, we trust God and cease to strive, when we desire and seek a closer walk, when we have mercy, when we are pure of heart, each one of these things is a step of growth in our Christian walk. And each one of them takes us another step away from the curse of the world and into the blessings of heaven. So what does it mean then to be pure? We live in a society where where purity really isn't a thing anymore, where people are willing to pay more for virgin or extra virgin olive oil, but they reject the idea of personal purity as silly, old-fashioned, unnecessary. Truth is considered situational, even non-existent. Even basic mathematics in two plus two equals four is rejected as somehow discriminatory. So in this environment, when, when we're challenged about the need to live a sanctified life, do we have an answer? This morning, let's look at have a ready answer, purity. In 1 Peter 3, Peter says, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear, having a good conscience that, whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed to falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So, what does it mean to be pure in heart? What do you tell someone if they ask you, why do you try to live this way? What does it mean to have purity? So, what is purity? If we say that we're pure or that we want to be, what does that mean? Well, we know what it means for something to be pure. It's authentic, natural, perfect, plain, simple, transparent, true, unadulterated. There are also rules that make things pure. For example, virgin olive oil. It's not only not mixed with other oils, it has to be expressed from the olives in a certain way. You can't cook the olives or use chemicals to extract the olive oil and call it virgin olive oil. You have to squish The olives, it has to be done mechanically. So what does it mean for a person to be pure? Are are there rules? Are are we unadulterated? Can we stay pure that way? That That part seems easy, doesn't it? Well, for the disciples as practicing Jews, well, the answer is pretty simple. You obey the law. There are 613 Old Testament laws, 365 shall nots, and 248 shalls. The rabbis like to say there was a, a shall not for every day of the year and a shall for every bone in the body. I guess they counted bones a little different than we do, but that's okay. So keep the law and you'll be pure. But we're not Jews, are we? We don't like that whole big law thing. Well, so which laws apply to us? Well, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, there's not a lot of slack there, is there? It looks like we're in for all 613 laws. So can anybody name them so we know we're going to go on the right path? Can you name the 613 laws? Oh, come on, sure you can. In Matthew 22:37, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord the God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That seems straightforward, right? If we can do those two things, then then everything else will follow. But as the word spread out from the Jewish communities into the Greek communities and the Roman communities, well, those people, they really didn't have the context for for what that meant. And and the disciples really weren't sure how they were going to fit in either. And so there was kind of a conflict. Some people thought they needed to be circumcised. Some people thought, no, they don't. Others thought they needed to become Jews. And others wondered, can't they just be Christians? (coughs) How is all that supposed to work? Well, Acts 15, 28 and 29, after the council of Jerusalem, the disciples and the church sent a letter to the Greeks, and they said, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So, to be pure, these are the necessary things. Be pure in our love of the Lord, all, 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 all the alls you have, is how you love the Lord, loving to our neighbor, don't accept things offered to idols, don't eat the blood, don't eat things that have been strangled because they still contain the blood, follows. And keep yourself from sexual immorality. Now the King James uses a more specific word, it uses the word fornication which we usually don't pretty much use anymore except maybe in church. And fornication means sex between people who aren't married. Okay. So that's broader than adultery, but it's really a little narrower than what the Greek word there, the pornea, means. That just means all forms of promiscuity. So anything you would do with anyone you're not married to including yourself or whoever. So purity towards God, purity and love to others, and purity of self. So why why then should we be pure? Why is it important to God that we're pure? How How does it benefit us? Are these just old fashioned ideas that we don't need in modern times? Colossians 2.8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So We always have to be careful when we start thinking, well, why do we have this rule? There must be a a practical reason that God made this law or that law or the other law. and, And that's when you get into, well, maybe that doesn't apply to us today because it's not practical anymore. So let's be clear we don't obey God in anything because of practical reasons. So it's tempting to say that this law or that law is just, well, just a good health practice, right? Dietary laws are just eating healthy, for example. You didn't want to eat some of those things that you can't eat anyway, right? But, and there are a lot of obvious practical reasons for sexual purity, But practical reasons ultimately fail to convince. Most obviously, a woman having sex outside of her marriage can become pregnant. And suddenly, one of God's greatest blessings is seen by her as a curse. But that's not a problem today, right? Because we have free, cheap, and effective birth control. But you know, the number of abortions in our country and the argument over keeping them legal, that pretty strongly argues otherwise, doesn't it? That's not a help. Promiscuous people are subject to a number of diseases, ranging from annoying to deadly, some of them incurable, and chaste people don't have to worry about that. But that risk, that really seems to deter no one it seems a lot of people today have greater faith in antibiotics than in God. So why be pure? Why, why miss all the fun? Well, what are the consequences of not being pure? We have several lists in scripture, right? In Galatians 5, 19 to 21, Paul writes, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before and have told you in time past that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. They shall not enter the kingdom of God. But at a certain age, or when the fires of passion burn at a certain temperature, Heaven can seem a long way away, can't it? So the reason for being pure isn't that it's practical or that it's safe or that it's just better for us. It's to obey God. And the reason for obeying God is because we love him. And because we want to be with him in heaven. Our love and passion for the Lord needs to exceed the desires of our flesh. But disobeying God has consequences in this life as well. Now turn over to Exodus 33. Now I want you to see a picture. Okay, we'll go down to verse 7. You can really read the whole chapter, but that'll be your homework, I guess. Moses took his tent. And pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. All the people stood apart, worshipping from their tent door, worshipping from way across the field, watching, as Moses spoke to the Lord. Just a few days before, Moses had purified all the people and assembled them at the foot of the mountain, and God came down to speak to them face to face. And after that, they committed idolatry, and they celebrated their idol with sexual sin. So now, they could only watch from the distance, while Moses pleaded with God for them. We want to be pure to satisfy the Master. We want to be able to be with God. My, my wife used to play in an orchestra. And, you know, in the orchestra, they have all the chairs that everybody sits in to play lined up in different lines in front of the conductor. So the conductor can see them all and they can all see him. And so there'll be four or five chairs for people playing flute and four or five chairs for the people playing violin and however many chairs for the people playing trumpet or whatever. And the chairs closest to the conductor, they call those first chair. And everybody wants to be in the first chair. Because the people in the first chair are the best musicians. They're the ones that the conductor can count on. They're basically the song leader for for that instrument. So everybody wants to be there. Well, so how do you get to be in the first chair? Well, you're, you're the best song leader, right? You're the best player with that instrument. So you practice really hard and you work really hard. And is that how you get into the first chair? because the conductor is a person. And at some point, to get into that first chair, you have to please the conductor. He has to trust you to carry the tune for the other players of that instrument who are going to follow along. It's personal. It's not just that you're the best. None of us here can claim to be the best Christian. Well, I hope maybe we all could. But in the end, we have to please the master to sit in the chair. Why? Why do we want to satisfy him? Because this is what he says for us to do to satisfy him, and we obey. Knowing the people were going to continue to stumble and to fall, well, God instituted the sacrifices. The sin offering, the trespass offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering. It gets kind of tedious reading through them all, but as you learn more about them, it becomes interesting, and you start to see what God is doing and how they're working. But but who are the parties to the sacrifice? So you have the priest who has to kill and offer the sacrifice. You have God who receives the sacrifice, and you have the repentant sinner. Which one are we? Where do we fit in to the, the sacrificial program there well Romans 12 1 says I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service so It's kind of a trick question right because we're the sacrifice and to be of any value the sacrifice has to be pure Over and over again in Scripture, we learn that the sacrifice is to be without spot or without blemish. It has to be the most perfect thing that the penitent sinner can offer. The people were always to offer God their best, not the sheep that they just wouldn't eat anyway because it was all mangly or whatever. It had to be the best. And if we are the sacrifice and we are so much more than just sheep, And how much more does that apply to us, that we have to keep ourselves pure? Well, so how can we be pure then? How do we do that? Well, are we pure? Well, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So no, we are not pure. We don't come to the Lord pure. What about our children? Aren't aren't our children pure? (laughs) Well, no. Our children are innocent. And that's not the same thing. They are innocent and curious, and so they need to be guarded. They need wiser, older people to protect them because in their curiosity and their innocence, we know that they can get into a lot of trouble and they can suddenly find themselves not pure. We need to protect them and bring them up to be wise. Well, so how do we get purity then? Well, purity is given. Revelation 19, 7, and 8 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Purity was granted to the bride, the church, that's you, to wear the white of righteousness. So purity was a gift. First John 1 7 and 9 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we know how we are washed and how we are made clean. We know the terrible cost at which we were washed of our sins. But then how do we keep the proverb from being true of us? Peter writes, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Peter's talking about people who have fallen back into their sin once having been saved. How do we avoid that? How do we stay pure? Having been cleansed in our walk, we need to seek purity in every step, not just one or two. We can't just focus on one or two things. We need to seek purity in all that we do. So what are those things? We have to have, as we already discussed, purity of love. Our first allegiance, our first responsibility, our first love must belong to god deuteronomy 6 4 and 5 says "Hear, O israel the lord our god is one you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength all the alls that you have we need to have purity of purpose you know, every day you make hundreds of decisions great and small whether you're going to get up in the morning, whether what you're going to eat, where you're going to go, who you're going to talk to. Do you make those decisions with the purpose of pleasing the Lord or with the purpose of pleasing yourself? In Acts eleven twenty two, 22, it says, Then the tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. To purpose in your heart to do something is to become so resolved that nothing will change your mind. Do you seek the Lord with purpose? Is being close to him more important to you than being entertained? Than being rich, and being pleased, and being well fed? Is being close to God what brings you satisfaction? Is that purity of purpose? We need to have purity in our relationships. Relationships affect us. The people we are close to influence us and are influenced by us, hopefully. Friendships Business associations, romantic involvements, they all need to be evaluated next to our relationship with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Well, So then the question is always asked, what does that mean we can't do outreach? I mean, how are we supposed to reach out to people if we can't associate with them. But there's a difference between association and entanglement. Doing business with someone is not the same thing as being in partnership with them. Working for someone is not the same thing as sharing ownership of the business. Avoid entanglements with people who are not believers. Because you will find your faith compromised. This can even happen as an employee. Always be careful of entanglements with unbelievers. To whom do you belong? You belong to Christ. And Paul says clearly here, and Jesus says it elsewhere, you are a temple of the living God. Christ is in you. Jesus lives in you And with you. If a man or a woman does not love Jesus, they can never love you. You can reach out to them, you can teach them the gospel, you can bring them to church, but when they do not have Christ, you must not date or marry them be clear, you have Christ in you. If they do not have Christ, they can never love you. You cannot marry an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, but now I have written to you to not keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Well, so what about other Christians? In our statement of faith, we agree to only marry a believer of like faith and practice. Our statement of faith uses the phrase like precious faith a lot. In case you don't know, that means another conservative Anabaptist. Well, but isn't that judging other believers? Or am I saying that you know Methodists aren't Christians? Well, consider the above. In our statement of faith, in our church practices, we forbid the use of many worldly entertainments, television, movies, professional sports, well, why? Because they consistently promote sexual immorality, covetousness, drinking, violence, that's a short list. So, what is this person's church's stand on these things? Do they use these things? What is their stand on modesty, on divorce and remarriage, on non resistance? on the head covering. Are these things important to you? Do you understand that if you marry a person of a different practice and attend their church, that you are giving those things up? Do you think you can carry your practices to another church that doesn't practice those things and keep them? I spent most of my life not a Mennonite, and I can tell you that you cannot. I have seen it. We used to attend a Valley Baptist church, a conservative Baptist church, and they told the story of a seeking family that had come there because it was a conservative church, and the ladies wore dresses, and maybe this would be a nice fit. And their teenage girls went to Sunday school. And in an hour, in the course of Sunday school, they had talked those girls out of their headship bands. They were proud of it. They thought they had done them a good turn. What, what does Jesus say about those who caused my little ones to stumble? These were good people. They thought they were good Christians. They thought they were doing the right thing. And Satan used them as wolves to cause these children to stumble. Does this other person you're interested in, do they respect your faith and practices? Well, what does that mean? That, that doesn't mean, well, you do you and I'll do me. That's not the way a wedded relationship can ever work. That means that they are conscientiously searching the scriptures to test the validity of your practices and to decide if those practices should become their own. That's respecting your faith and practice. Do your faith and practices matter to you? Is is Anabaptist or Mennonite part of your identity after Christian? If someone tells you that he or she doesn't like Mennonites, how are they ever going to love you? How is that relationship going to work? It's not. Something has to change. And it's going to be you. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. We need to have purity in doctrine. So Paul was talking there about the church's association with people who claimed to be Christians but didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. And he hoped that he could shame them into the correct belief by showing them the absolute incompatibility of their stand with salvation in Jesus. He wanted to tell them that trying to unite the two beliefs was well, ridiculous. You should be ashamed of yourself for even thinking that. To stand, you have to know what you believe. Deuteronomy 6.6 6 says, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. As I get older, I begin to think that phylacteries weren't such a bad idea. Time spent in God's word brings you closer to him. It builds you up. It gives you defenses against the lies of the world. You can't obey God if you don't know him, and you can't be like Jesus if you don't listen to him. We have to read the word. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Now this doesn't mean that there are no questions. It doesn't mean that there aren't valid differences in teachings and traditions. But any meaningful discussion of doctrine starts with a solid knowledge of God's word. His word is clear. And we can differ in how we apply it in some things but application has to be made. Ephesians 4, 14 and 15 says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. On the way home from work the other day, I turned on the radio and listened to his radio devotional and the preacher, teacher was saying, he said, what the Bible says loudly, cling tightly to, and to what the Bible says softly, cling lightly. What is that even supposed to mean? That's just an excuse for liberalism. That's worldly nonsense. God says what God says, and what God says, we do. We don't pick, oh, God only said that once. In Scripture so I don't have to do it. I can just hold lightly to that if anybody argues I don't have to know God said it We act in love and kindness and mercy in doing what God says and in that case We'll never be wrong We need to have purity of the body Well, so so what does it mean then to keep our bodies pure? Well, Hebrews 13:4 says, "Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge." So, in marriage, the physical union symbolizes the joining of the couple as one flesh. Apart from marriage, it's sin. Simple. You cannot be one flesh without commitment. Without love and trust, there is only lust. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, Whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own. Promiscuity is really idolatry. You choose to make up your own rules for relationship and ignore your relationship with God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified." Are you in possession of your own vessel? Are you in control of your own body? Do you control what happens with your own body? If you are in a relationship with someone who does not value your purity, you will not remain pure. What is this about defrauding one another? Well, to defraud is to take something under false pretenses or without paying for it. To be intimate with someone and to not intend to marry them or be married to them is fraud. It's literally stealing their purity. And also to be clear, if someone is raped or abused, that does not make them impure. They did not have control of their vessel. The sin wasn't theirs. Giving up your purity is a choice. It's yours, you have it, to give or to keep for God. Colossians 3 says, 3-1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your thing, your heart on things above. If you are in an impure relationship, you really, you have two choices. You can marry and purify the relationship in marriage. Or you can get out whether you are a man or a woman, if you have given yourself to someone and they don't wish to marry you, to commit to spend their life with you, do they love you? Can they possibly love you then? If they don't wanna be in a relationship with you without sin, why would you think that they would ever commit to spend their life with you. Walk away and repent. The only person you really need to please is Christ. It is Christ you belong to. It is Christ who will call you to eternity. All of our relationships in this life are subordinate to our love for Christ. We need to have purity of mind. This probably should have been First, sin starts in the mind, and then it's formed into an action. And to keep the mind pure, it has to be kept busy and focused. Romans twelve two says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Again, beware of the entertainments offered by this world. All of these Movies, TV shows, professional sports, video games, novels, all of these often portray immorality, violence, alcohol, godlessness as the solution to problems. Don't be those Paul spoke of in Romans who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. What about pornography? Do you really think those are just two people who love each other so much they have to show the world everything they do? No. They're prostitutes. They're doing it for fame and money. And when we watch them, we approve of what they're doing. Mark seven twenty says, Jesus says, And what comes out of a man defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. With our thoughts, we need to guard our speech. We need to have purity in speech. The spoken word brings a fleeting thought to life and cements it in your mind. If you think about yourself driving to work and somebody does something stupid in front of you and almost kills you, and what do you say? And if you say the first thing that comes to mind, how does the rest of your commute go? Do you find yourself angry for the whole rest of the trip? Whereas if perhaps you would pray for that person, oh Lord, pray at least that he doesn't kill anybody else on his way there, you find your trip goes a little better and that anger is just bled away. Can you think of a time when angry words or cursing has ever helped in a conflict? No. They always escalate and they always defile. Jesus tells us we'll be judged for every idle word. We need to guard our speech and keep it pure. Well, so how do we do this? Does this sound easy? Or maybe it sounds terrifying. Peter tells us that those who have fallen back into sin are in a worse state than if they had never been saved. If we seek to keep ourselves pure in all these ways, can we do it? How do we do it? What do we do? We'll turn over to John 6. down to verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. And now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark. And Jesus had not come to them. And then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. And so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Like the sea, it feels like the world pushes back against us for everything that we try to do, and and doubly so if we try to do it for the Lord. (coughs) Alone, we feel like we've never made any progress at all. We're just not getting anywhere. Here the disciples had the wind blowing against them. They rode most of the night, and they'd only gone three or four miles. I don't know if you ever rode a boat. I rode about 12 miles, but it was just a little boat by myself. And I can't imagine rowing the big ship that they fish out of and just not getting anywhere, and the wind just blowing them back and blowing them back. And then they saw Jesus. And they were afraid. They had seen the miracles. And here came Jesus walking on the sea. They knew who Jesus was. It had been confessed. But here in the middle of the storm, it was clear to them what that meant. This wasn't just our friend, Jesus, our teacher, Jesus. This wasn't just the guy that we could sit around and joke over a meal with and then talk about some scripture. This was the Lord of Lords. This was the creator of the earth. This was the Lord Jesus who had control over the sea and the wind, and he was coming to them. Like Isaiah, they were undone, they were afraid. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am, do not fear. That I am, that is the same structure I am that I am, that Jesus uses in all of the I am statements in the book of John. For some reason, scholars don't count it as one of the I am statements, I think because they want seven or something. But he uses the exact same phrase, I am that I am. He's telling them, I am the Lord, but do not fear. I love you. I'm here for you. And when they willingly received him into the boat, their struggle was over. Maintaining our purity means involving Jesus in everything that we do.